If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. Federal Budget Day in Canada. That's like your parents telling you, don't expect much for Christmas this year. Ah! Here's Scott Thompson. Yeah. Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Levon Helm, singer for the band, drummer two, number 148. On Rolling Stones, top 200 singers of all time. Who would have thunk Levon Helm? Better vocalist than uh, Celine Dion. That would be an interesting debate. Uh, Where is no, she on the list, Scott? Uh, uh, hang on a sec. I'm just... Let me just... Hang on. I think it's here. Give me a minute. No, no. It's the next page. Hang on. No. Hang on. Hang on. Hang on. She's not here. She's not on it. What? Sorry. Not on it. All right. Another sad day. Quebec police officer, uh, a veteran police officer, uh, delivering a uh, an arrest warrant of some sort. Uh, number eight this year. Eight police officers in the line. Or sorry, eight police officers have lost their lives in the last year. Um, and, and, you know, we're hearing stories that recruitment, you know, even with Hamilton Police Service, it's down almost 50 percent. You know, and, and I mean, no wonder. And yesterday... Yesterday, we buried two in Edmonton. It's unbelievable. Um, uh, anyway, we'll, we'll bring you up to date on that as we can. As a, another video is surfacing uh, uh, from a Vancouver Starbucks where some guy gets randomly attacked and stabbed and literally falls to, you know, falls on the, on the patio and bleeds to death while the guy's sitting there sipping his coffee. It's part of the experience. I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. We'll talk about it, though, coming up a little later on. Also, what else we got? Oh, uh, you know, everybody's talking about EVs, electric vehicles, all that stuff. Uh, Christy Clark, former liberal uh, uh, premier of British Columbia. It currently takes 13 years to get a mind built in Canada. Uh, Polly Everest saying anywhere from 20 to 25. I'm sure he's got examples of all. At the end of the day, uh, we should have been starting to build mines. Oh, let me say now, considering we have to start doing this in the next few years, 10 years ago, there's only one mine that's supplying these minerals. It's up in Manitoba and everything that they take out of the ground, they ship to China. So um, we have to have this complete discussion, this complete discussion, except, you know, rather than just the discussion on the extremes, which is where we seem to be going. Par- Speaking of extremes, Paris protesting because they want to lift their uh, retirement age from 62 to 64. There's your socialism at work. 62. Wouldn't that be nice? Uh, anyway, uh, all right. Uh, obviously, we've got uh, some clips of uh, of the situation in and around Quebec. We want to play. Here's Global uh, Global News's Brandon Haynes on the, just the horrific story coming out of Quebec today. Quebec's police watchdog, which is investigating, says Brio and another officer were arresting the man at about 8:30 p.m. for uttering threats when he grabbed a knife and stabbed her. 
The Independent Investigations Bureau says a pair of officers who arrived shortly afterwards fatally shot the suspect. Currently, five investigators from the BEI have been assigned to the case. Provincial police say one other officer was injured in the intervention but is expected to recover. Briot is the ninth officer to die in the line of duty in Canada in the past six months. Braden Jagger Haynes, Global News, Montreal. I'm sorry, I stand corrected. The ninth officer. Um, I'm not sure in the line of duty because there was the one that was killed on his way to work here uh, last summer. Uh, here's what the Quebec Premier had to say. I want to offer all my condolences to a family of uh, Maureen Bro, also to all uh, police people. They have a tough job. Yeah, and uh, it's not getting any easier as we're reading articles and how difficult it is to get to recruit. We know how hard it is for all industry to try to recruit. Uh, police service is having an extremely difficult time. Uh, we're seeing recruitment numbers almost half of, uh, of what they used to be, uh, as far as people interested in, in becoming police officers. It's just, what an incredible year when it comes to this sort of violence. Not even to mention what we saw happen with the 16 year old boy on the Toronto subway. And my goodness, the mere, well, the person in Vancouver at a random attack at a Starbucks. Angry people. We got to get, we got to get a handle on this. We got to get rid of divisive politics. We need leaders that unify. And um, it, it's sad to think of, of what we have come to uh, in this land of extremes. It's you're either this way or that way. Like there's no common sense in the middle, it appears. Uh, budget day today. Uh, we're going to give you a little bit of it as it uh, comes out at four o'clock because we think we you need just a little bit of a nap. Uh, anyway, we'll take about it. You know, we'll give us you a sample of what the beginning is, and then we'll go from there and, and decide whether it's worth staying. Enough. Conservatives stand for a country that works for the people who do the work. We want to bring home common sense again, and that's why I'm announcing today that unless Justin Trudeau cancels his planned tax hikes and inflationary deficit spending that have driven up the cost of living to 40-year highs, we will vote against this budget. I don't think that's any surprise. Uh, Pierre Polyevra, conservative leader. All right, federal budget day. Everybody's excited. You know, it's like Christmas and no presents. Uh, as Canada prepares for all of this, Ipsos has polled Canadians to find out what is important to them. Let's bring in Gregory Jack, Vice President, Public Affairs Canada, Ipsos Public Affairs, and with us now. Greg, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm good. How are you? So far, so good. So what are you hearing from Canadians? What's top of mind? What are those kitchen table issues? Well, you know, we're about half hour, a little more away from the budget. So we're going to find out whether the government is uh, aligned with Canadians. But we're hearing um, pocketbook issues. We're hearing that Canadians are worried about inflation. They want some relief on on higher taxes. Um, and they, sorry, they want relief with lower taxes. And they want uh, relief with groceries, um, and and really they want to see some investments uh, to help them get through this tough fiscal period. Uh, that being said, we're hearing that there's uh, rumors of some sort of grocery rebate. We're not sure how that's going to uh, uh, be distributed at this point, but it is. It sounds like it's certainly targeted to uh, lower or the lowest income Canadians. Is this something that is felt right the way across the board uh, in all segments of the population as we focus primarily, primarily it appears, on those that are in greatest of need? 
Yeah, no, we, we see a general consensus across the country on a lot of these issues. Um, Ontarians are, are actually a little bit higher than the national average on needing some of that relief. Um, and the only real difference we see is in Quebec, where, where there's a, bit, a little bit less desire for that. Uh, Quebecers are more likely to uh, want to see some more investments in healthcare. Uh, is anything surprising to you in this? Is there anything out of the ordinary as opposed to, say, what it has been in the last few years or even pre-pandemic? Well, we, we've had a really tumultuous couple of years. And I think during yeah. the pandemic, governments were asking Canadians to make sacrifices, uh, put the community over the uh, themselves. Uh, and now we're seeing a little bit of this me over we. So people are starting to say, you know, I've done my part. I've done enough. And now I want government to, um, you know, to to help me with the higher, you know, cost of living. And of course, the government did a lot during the pandemic around uh, COVID relief and that. But but coming out of that, people are facing prices that, uh, you know, an inflation we haven't seen in many years. The other thing I would note is that, you know, in the last few weeks, we've we've seen a news cycle that's been really really dominated by the visit of the president of the United States, by the uh, allegations of Chinese interference in our elections. Um, and and the president's demand uh, for us to invest more in military. And these are obviously important issues, and they're issues that our allies care about, but that's not registering for Canadians. You know, investment in the armed forces was only a priority for 7% of people, uh, you know, far, far down the list. So some of the things the government's been talking about or being forced to react to are not necessarily aligned with uh, where Canadians are at. Canadians are looking for the government to do something for them. Uh, it's interesting. So, uh, because in, in many situations, healthcare, of course, always, obviously, uh, obviously near the top of the pack in most cases. Sometimes we see climate change make a higher impact. But as you mentioned, it seems that the top, whether you want to categorize it as inflation, affordability, groceries, uh, the cost of housing, the cost of whatever, they are primarily pocketbook issues about affordability. Absolutely. You know, we, we did have, you know, on their uh, spending to support transition to greener energy. Uh, that was only a priority for 12% of uh, Canadians. And so the, the pocketbook issues, exactly as you say, um, are really what's driving people's, uh, people's worries these days. And, um, you know, we're going to see whether the government targets those measures or, um, or applies them across the board. You, you mentioned earlier that we're hearing that it's going to go to people who are maybe a little lower income. One of the interesting findings in our poll as well was that, um, there was some support for Canadians uh, saying that, you know, we need to tax people who are better off, more taxes for those Canadians who are better off. And that was supported by about a priority for about one in four, uh, you know, Canadians, actually a little bit lower in Ontario, maybe because that's where some of those people live. So so people are also saying, well, look, you know, um, you guys are saying that there's there's not enough resources to, to provide the help that uh, we're saying we need. So go and tax the people who have those resources. Now, we didn't define what better off is. And, and obviously, yeah. you know, some people who might be calling for that could, in fact, be in that category, depending on how that's defined. But um, there is a desire as well to to see those who are making uh, record profits in that face higher taxes. Uh, you, you mentioned something and, and, and it brought a thought to me. Uh, you talked about U.S. President Joe Biden's visit and it, it was, you know, a, a really a, a sort of unifying um, a time, I thought, a unifying speech that he gave. Has our, And I know this isn't what you've been focusing on, Greg, here, but do you see our impression of America changing? Because it seemed pre-pandemic we were kind of snotty towards them. We're better than them. We can do our health <laughs> Care is better, and then maybe COVID nineteen was a blast of reality for people. And here we are. It was the message I was getting was like North American strong, you know, Canada, Mexico, and the U.S. 
Well, you know, and, and you're right, we didn't focus on these questions in this poll, but some of our other research has, has looked at this. Um, the first thing I would note on that is that, you know, um, Joe Biden probably polls better here than he does uh, in the States. Yeah, the Democrats yeah, uh, yeah. would love to have uh, Canada as, as the 51st state where they could get votes. Um, and of course, during the Trump years, the, the opposition to Donald Trump was, was very high in Canada, much higher than even a lot of parts of the uh, liberal United States. So I think there is a little bit of that relationship coming back um, feeling, uh, given the president's visit. But at the same time, you know, U.S. has passed the, um, uh, the climate change bill, essentially. I, I, can't, I, I think it's called the Deficit Reduction Act or something to that effect. But really, it's investments in, in climate change. And, and there's a lot of calls for Canada to, to get on board with this or we're going to be left behind. So um, you're seeing a, a, an inward turning on the part of the Americans, um, a little bit of anti-free trade, uh, a desire for us to decouple from places like China and, and fix our supply chain so that what we went through after COVID doesn't happen again. And, uh, and so obviously for that to happen, um, Canada needs to be on board with the U.S. So we need to make sure we're inside that tent uh, and working with them. And there were some concessions uh, from the Americans during the uh, the president's visit on that front. Gregory Jack with us, Vice President, Public Affairs Canada, Ipsos Public Affairs, and how we are feeling heading into a budget. Greg, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Yep, you too. Thanks a lot, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I'm going to talk to Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, in regard to another uh, company that has abandoned its plans to uh, transport natural gas from Western Canada to Nova Scotia uh, because, of course, it's all about EVs and minerals now. Interesting note from uh, Christy Clark, the former British Columbia Premier, Liberal British Columbia Premier, said it takes 13 years to get a mine built. Uh, Pierre Polyevre saying it's more like 20 to get a mine built. 13 years. Uh, we should have started this then 10 years ago and more than a decade. This is out of Canadian Canadian Mining Journal. More than a decade after shutting down lithium production, the Tanco mine in Manitoba started producing lithium concentrate in December, making it a rare manufacturer of the raw material in Canada amidst a rise in demand for batteries. The company that owns it, listed on the stock exchange in China, shipped about 2,000 tons of concentrate to a sister company last year to feed its battery-grade lithium uh, production lines. Uh, so anything that comes out of the ground there goes right off to China because that's where the jobs are. And of course, uh, if we put the jobs here, it probably pollutes something. Uh, let's bring in Dan McTagg. Uh, he is with us now. Dan, thanks for your thoughts. Uh, thanks for your time, rather. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing very well. Looking forward to uh, sharing with you some of those thoughts. Yeah. All right. So let's start with the uh, pipeline. We've talked about this before, how much we need, just like the Trans-Canada Railway and just like uh, hydro lines and whatever, we need pipelines across this country. Another one bites the dust. There we go. Your comment? Yeah. You know, it's like that old uh, skit out of Seinfeld. No soup for you. No natural gas yeah. for you. It's just yeah. crazy. Uh Look, the rest of the world is moving ahead. Um, they're not waiting, including Biden, who, while he talks a big deal and is willing to spend trillions of, well, half a trillion dollars to bring in his uh, IRA. And there, I don't mean the Irish Republican Army. There, I mean the Inflationary Re- Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, he's still willing to build natural gas pipelines. He's still willing to uh, permit uh, oil development uh, up in Alaska. Uh, so, you know, there is the two phases of Janus happening here. While Canada, the International Boy Scout and Girl Guide, is basically saying, hell no, we, we won't do that. We, we just don't want it. So, 
you know, projects are being uh, proposed. Projects are being rejected. This is not a country that you want to do anything in simply because it's not worth your investment. You're going to wind up losing it. And, of course, that means that Canadians are uh, uh, are worse off as a result. So uh, it's pretty much a given. Uh, I don't want to say it the way you guys might, but it's pretty much killed the Canadian energy industry, the uh, natural gas, that sort of thing. What I'm concerned about, Dan, is everybody's talking about EVs. We're going to be here in five years. We're going to be here in 10 years. We're going to be, and like, you know, Ontario's not just going to manufacture. We're doing everything. We're going to be self-sufficient and do it all here. As everybody thinks that mining is some less, somehow less intrusive to the environment than natural gas is. It's taking 13 years to open a damn mine. How did the one, how did the one get open in Manitoba that's shipping all its stuff to China? Yeah, well, obviously it went under the under the uh, under the wire, but the fact that's the point. China's had a ten to twelve year advantage on EVs. So while we had the monopoly on internal combustion engines, and we know that they're efficient, we know that there's a better way. That ultimately, they will be built in such a way that they will be net zero uh, at some point uh, in the not too distant future. We've fantasized this idea that we can somehow catch up to China, which has a dozen year advantage and has several car manufacturers. Uh, 20, 30% of sales over there is already EVs. We're not going to catch up, certainly not with our labor market, certainly not with our strong uh, environmental standards, certainly not with our labor standards, and certainly not with our, uh, you know, what, what, what passes as uh, an, an abomination when it comes to the permitting process and every Tom, Dick, and Harry being able to block these things. What would be interesting to see, though, in all this, Scott, is maybe we'd have the same folks uh, who have been hit hard by environmentalists and uh uh, lawfare organizations who have blocked pipelines and blocked anything to do with oil and gas. Maybe we can get those organizations to block these mines and see how uh, the uh, the shoe on well, the other uh, the, the foot uh, the shoe on the other foot feels for some of these people who have thought, well, Canada's not a place uh, where you can actually depend on any type of regulatory certainty because the authority of the government, as we saw with the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, expansion is such that uh, you're on the hook now for $30 billion for something that shouldn't have cost you uh, a a plug cent. What I find fascinating is we're heading for the same problem with mining as we have with with natural gas extraction and nobody seems to see that it's like you know uh the 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 climate change extremists and like everybody's concerned about climate change in canada let's be honest but the extremists are saying you know this is the way to go this is the way to go or at least some of them are and nobody's talking about how this is as evasive as it is farming natural gas and as and and as china is taking these raw materials and and doing their own thing with them they're also the biggest uh importer of our coal and all so they're using everything and we're standing there with our thumb up our rear end it's bizarre (laughs) they're laughing at us everyone is laughing at us in north america and europe because we know our wokeism is basically uh likely to lead to our downfall as a as an economy and it's pretty clear that when you see the changing relationship uh, Middle East with China, with Russia, with uh, with uh, with India, uh, it looks like we're about to be upended, and that isn't just obvious in terms of the uh, the connections, uh, the new understandings, the new relationships, economic and otherwise, that are taking place. We're also seeing it uh, in terms of the lack of uh, interest in the U.S. currency, which will no longer be used in the near near future as the denominator of commodities, and that's a pretty significant hit 
uh, not only does it uh, flip Canada out of the picture, it basically makes the once strong United States, the greenback, irrelevant to uh, the growing trade relationship, which is bypassing woke Canada, the United States, and Europe. Oh, by the way, uh, Germany and Italy have finally said enough of the green nonsense. They're not going along with what Canada's going along with, banning internal combustion engines. Why is that, Scott? Because they're not nuts like we are here in this country. And I don't mean to be you know, demeaning in saying that. It's that I think people have this poor understanding of what it takes to make an electric vehicle, uh, and that it involves ex- an intense amount, you alluded to it, an intense amount of energy that is fossil fuel driven. It requires a, a significant amount of damage to the environment, the acids that are required, the amount of extraction that is required, the distillation process, the, uh, you know, there is, if someone took the time uh, to, to look at this, I know a guy named John Lee Pettymore, not the singer or the, the song uh, on Twitter, has gone through a lot of this in terms of specifics as to what it takes, you'd recognize very quickly the EVs are not a way to go. What they are is, in fact, uh, those at, uh, at the, uh, at the techno- technocratic state uh, level here in this country and around the world trying to get people to simply get out of driving, period. Well, and, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm all for mining. I'm all for taking advantage of Canadian natural resources, whatever they are, in the, in the best and most efficient way we can uh, without harming the planet. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm not sure that this is any better than what we have. You know, again, we're selling China coal, but we're also selling them, the, you know, the crucial materials to make EVs. So <laughs> at, where, where, do you, where do you, like, will we ever see any of these mines built we hear about the ring of fire the road's not even built yet like they're talking about having ev cars on the road in five years like yeah. what what how will we see these mines actually built i've heard about the ring of fire as has everyone else for the past dozen years and as you're right not a thing has been done not a not a not a single piece of gravel has been moved uh to to get into that direction because of the amount of work that's required the amount of capital required we're a capital starved country no one wants to invest in Canada. There's no security here. There's no way of ensuring somebody putting in trillions of dollars of money that they're going to be able to see any type of uh, return on that money, much less uh, the probability of uh, the authority of governments to be able to prevent whack jobs from coming in and basically overturning it on the most ridiculous and specious of arguments. So, you know, uh, you, you go up in the ring of fire and you run into, a, I don't know, a, 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 an odd-looking fish in a particular part of a, of a stream, it's over. It's done. You, you'll, it'll take you five years to get through that process. And by that point, uh, you know, the idea that uh, we can do this anytime soon in within this generation is completely lost. So it ain't going to happen here. What is going to happen is that we are going to import more Chinese-made yeah, exactly. batteries made yeah. with the most disgusting of environmental standards, there is no, which are non-existent, and which labor can uh, can be had for about a tenth, a fraction of what we do here uh, in Canada and the United States. We've priced ourselves out of the world market, and because of our high standards, we're going to wind up with nothing except borrowing as we do when we go to Canadian Tire, everything from China. Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. Uh, it's amazing how something that uh, mining will be less evasive than extracting natural gas. Uh, I'm all for everything, but my goodness, uh, uh, we have to look at the nose at the end of our face here. Thank you, Dan. Yep. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Scott. Cheers. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CXML.
Tourism Regina, you want a good slogan, something that's going to, you know, get attention? I think this one's knocked it out of the park. Not sure everyone agrees with me. Not sure if it's something that will stick. Uh, But their new line, well, it was, um, show us your Regina, the city that rhymes with fun. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert, known for this sort of stuff, fun and branding. Alyssa, how are you today? I wasn't sure where you were going with that. So. And neither was I. And I had to really no, put on the brakes there. because Lord, I, I know. know. <laughs> I, I, I'm so glad I caught myself. Lord knows where I was going to end up there. I would have got us both in trouble. <laughs> and you would have hated me for the rest of your life. All right. So um, we're laughing. I'm talking about it in Hamilton. Is this not a home run? Well, you know, people say there's no PR like and I get any PR is good PR. And I have always said to you, I don't necessarily agree with that. Let's dial back and let's discuss how this likely happened. You know, whenever uh, an, ad, an ad agency, which was obviously um, contracted to do this job, I mean, it was done through sort of an arm of the government. And I think actually it was moved departments from one place to another. And they all sit around a table and they present their concepts. And then somebody will always present something cheeky. Ad agencies love to do this. Like they don't ever expect the client well, maybe not ever, but not ever likely expect the client to say, "Oh my goodness, let's really push the envelope." We're and that helps. And that helps. We're a city. And that helps Who cares? find the ba- Let's go. And that, and that helps find the boundaries. Yeah, that helps what? find the boundaries. No. Well, you know, you think there'd be boundaries, but you, know, you get a bunch of people around the table and they always say, let's not have the same old, same old. We always promote Regina as, you know, it's really boring and really staid and we want to put some life into it. We want to be bold. We want to be provocative. We want to have a viral campaign. Believe me, that was in the brief, Scott. The word <laughs> viral was in the brief. So the so agency we're... gets this and they go, okay, here's what we got. So they present three concepts, and I guarantee you this is one of the concepts that they likely never expected to go anywhere, except all the people around the table thought, yeah, let's do it. And that's (laughs) how it happened. (laughs) So what's wrong with it? You know, I mean, do you really need – this is the – Yes, you know, people have been saying the joke about Regina since we learned what the capitals were of the provinces in Canada when we were in grade three or four, right? I was never like that, Alyssa. We all giggled. I never did that. I never did that at all. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, and we've all giggled about it. And I think that that's how it was presented. You know, we always say it. Everybody's thought it. Why not just put it in an ad campaign? Except you know what? You're not just, this isn't just for the people around the table. Ad campaigns are for everybody. And one of the articles that I read about this, uh, you know, Scott, was from the BBC. So it's going farther afield. I mean, I don't know if people are all of a sudden booking, uh, you know, hundreds of plane tickets to Regina. But yes, it is going far and wide. But is this how you want to talk about your city? Is this how you want to sexualize, you know, talking about your city in order to promote it? One doesn't just promote things for tourism. I mean, you also promote, I mean, although this was for tourism, you also promote things for business. You promote things for all sorts of reasons for people to come to Regina. And to have to sexualize your city is that where we are now i mean you remember used to do posters for the high school dance and the top of it used to say sex now that i have your attention is that (laughs) what we've resorted to i mean honestly it's so Uh, sophomoric it's so 
ridiculous. It's and that's why I'm laughing. Grade three. <laughs> that it, it, you know, it boggles the mind what's going in Saskatchewan. I have a lot of problems with Saskatchewan, especially when it comes to like you know healthcare delivery. This, this got this just is just the cherry on the top. It doesn't. Oh, nice choice of words. Um, oh, it, I didn't do that. Yeah. See, look at you. Look at you. Get your mind out of the gutter, Freeman. I, I'm Come going on. down the same gutter, Scott. That's I'm trying it. to find you. But okay, like I'm playing devil, devil's advocate here, and you know, know. maybe there's a, maybe there's a bit of a grade three in me. But uh, it's not like they say the word vagina. There's nothing wrong with saying the word vagina, and we actually should be not uncomfortable saying the word vagina. There you go. But I think that I think that you know, um, in popular vernacular, it's always been considered sort of a taboo word. I don't know why. You know, we talk about male parts without any, you know, call call it what it is. You know, we talk about vaginas, we talk about penises. You know, but we've been taught in health class that these are sort of like, you know, ooh, you know, you know, got to be careful, and these are really private parts, so we don't really want to talk talk, you know, about them all the time. So, you know, as children, we've grown up with this narrative, to be quite honest. Hmm. So is there a problem with talking about vaginas? No. But is there a problem in the, with equating a vagina just because it rhymes with Regina? Yes. Yes, there is a problem. And you should, a... like I say, I'll go back. You should not have to sexualize your city in order to try and attract people to it. What city rhymes with penis? Um, all I know is the planet Venus. So <laughs> and I don't think there's any one way. Back. Oh, and let's go into that other planet. All right. This is just oh, going to hell no, in a no, handbasket. No, 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 no. This by far the best discussion, Alyssa Freeman and uh, sorry, Alyssa Freeman and I have ever had PR and pop culture expert. Oh. Alyssa, thank you for walking that fine line with me and you have a great day. Oh, I'm going to be thinking about nothing else, Scott. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sure. All right. Uh, you heard on the way in, Young and Restless, the theme playing. Man, 50 years. There used to be many of these, and now not so many, but this one continues on. Let's bring in Bill Brio, TV critic and author. He is with us now. Bill, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Doing okay there. How are you? So far, so good. Are you surprised this uh, soap has lasted so long? There were a lot at, at one time. Well, really, only a couple. Then it, it exploded, and now it's back to the basics. What are your? What's the success of this one? Why is this one uh, ringing in fifty? Yeah, this is the last vestige. You know, there's I think maybe three or four soaps on network TV, but network TV is also on the endangered species list. Yep. So. These, uh, these soaps still endure. Uh, you know, it's interesting. 1973, it began. I think it just started with some pretty good characters. Victor Newman, and uh, he didn't come right away, but pretty close. Uh, Jeannie Cooper, way back as Catherine Chandler. Way back. So far back, these mm. people actually were young and restless. <laughs> and, you know, now, now some of them are dead and not so restless. But uh, Victor Newman, Eric Braden, he keeps keeps soldiering on. Um, why in, and I know this, but tell people, younger people who may not know, why were these called soap operas? Goes all the way back to radio. And I'm, I guess it was brought to you by, you know, bars of soap. They were, they're promoting soap on radio, uh, and, uh, ivory soap or whatever. And they would bring you the guiding light or, you know, days of our lives or shows like this. And there was a lot of, there was like a dozen on network TV in the sixties, and uh, General Hospital, which just celebrated 60 years, it still survives. But most of the others, the edge of night, they're long gone. 
And uh, but the young and the restless, it was sexier. You know, the, the people were better looking. It was all about the rich and famous. Hmm. And I think when the 70s came along, you had lifestyles of the rich and famous and people were starting to get fascinated with that kind of celebrity. And these characters really embodied that dream for a lot of people. And viewers just wanted to spend time with them. And this at that time, at the beginning, way back when, remember my grandmother used to watch General Hospital all the time. Um, this was geared to a female audience when not as many women were in the workforce as they are now. So how has this genre continued considering the upheaval in society and what we have now? Yeah, you know, it was always the cliche that it was housewives that watched, and that's why this, the ads were for dishwashing detergent and things like yeah. that. But honestly, I remember back in my day in university, yeah, a lot of yeah. university students watched Young and the yeah. Restless and the Bold yeah. and the Beautiful. You know, it became sort of an obsession and almost sort of TikTok back in the day. You know, um, people look at nowadays, consume things, young young people, they, they might watch uh, – 45 episodes of Friends on a weekend, even though they weren't born when the show went off the air, but they catch up with it. And uh, soap operas were back before you could do that, watch something on demand. You had to just follow it as a serial day after day after day. You couldn't just binge it, but you could watch it and you could watch it for 50 years. The, you bring up a valid point, too, here, and talk about this format a bit in, in the sense that, you know, back in the day when these were famous and they'd write uh, dramas or sitcoms or anything, they were one-episode deals. You didn't have to watch the whole series to see the characters grow, although there was some of that. There was no ongoing storyline or serial, as you as you called it, uh, whereas now you look at binge TV, you look at things like Breaking Bad or Ozark, that's what all of this is. It's all you have to keep following in order to, to stay abreast of what's going on. Yeah, and that's how they hooked you. If you look at Coronation Street on CBC, most nights, yeah. that's the number one show on CBC. It's on early, like at 7 o'clock. Been on for like 70 years, starting way back in England. So, yeah, you get sort of hooked on those characters and the stories. Even though Victor Newman, he's been in jail 12 times. He's been married yeah. 40 times. He's yeah. been dead three times. You know, the, the stuff that he's gone through, it's ridiculous, but because it only happened when you watched it, your generation, you might have only seen him get married twice. You know, so <laughs> it, it, it just it just resonates, and he, they keep putting him in jail again after every twelve years just to entertain another generation. Uh, what about the schedule, the rigors of being a soap opera star? Uh, I know Eric Braden, Victor Newman was again lashing out, and he's done this a few times about people who people who slight this uh, medium and, and say that you know they're B grade actors and such. Talk a bit about that. I love Eric Braden. I've interviewed him a few times. Very yeah. knowledgeable guy. He knows more about George Chevalo and Canadian boxers than most Canadians. Mm. Very big boxing fan. And uh, yeah, like this guy was in the Rat Patrol, you know, like he was, yeah. he goes back. He, he he did work before soap operas. He's in a great episode of the Mary Tyler Moore show where he's this culture critic. He goes on the air and ends up getting a pie in the face. Uh, but yeah, what a gig. You know, the guy gets millions of dollars for being this uh, sort of dream guy, even though he's whatever he is now and almost 80. Um, and it's just entertaining for a lot of folks because he plays this cocky businessman and it's almost a grandfather now, but he's still, you know, it's like Rupert Murdoch. He's still on his yeah. wife. 
That's like watching Succession. I mean, really, is it much different? Uh, Bill Brio with his TV critic and author talking about 50 years of the young and restless. Bill, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You know, it's just been a bad couple of days. And, um, you know, you just got to wonder, Canadians just seem to be in a bad place. Uh, Obviously, yesterday, uh, Canada saw two Edmonton police officers' uh, funeral after they were killed. Um, Today, a Quebec Quebec police officer, veteran, uh, was the ninth to uh, be killed. We saw also footage of a fatal stabbing in Vancouver outside of Starbucks there, um, right outside the coffee shop, and everybody just kind of milling about. And does anybody notice the man dying in the uh, on the patio? It, it's just absolutely nuts. And then, of course, last weekend, 16-year-old boy just minding his own business on a subway platform, and his life is taken from him. Have we become... So angry, so divisive, we're just desensitized to all of this? Are we happy with all of this? Is this acceptable? Uh, Steve Jordans is with us, professor of psychology, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Steve, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. You too, Scott. Great to be with you. I, you know, you hate to seem or sound so pessimistic, but it seems like we're in a pretty dark place right now. We, we are. We're really seeing the effects of chronic stress done at a scale we've never seen before. So, yeah. you know, the whole world has been under so much stress and literally it's it's like sort of water dripping and eventually the cracks start to show and, and we're seeing those cracks, you know, a lot just appear daily, it seems. We remember the, you know, really three years ago this month that all of this started with COVID-19 and everybody sent home and we didn't know what it was. We didn't know how to react. And people, I remember at seven o'clock, you go outside and bang your pots and pans to show your support for the healthcare workers. And I remember saying probably to people like you, Steve, you know, this maybe this is a unifying time for us. It's like wartime. We're all coming together. And we did. And then something happened. What the heck happened? Yeah. So, I mean, there's this notion in psychology called the common enemy, that that the best way to bring people together is to give them a common enemy. And COVID was our common enemy. The problem is COVID just wore us down. And and as the anxiety and stress continued, what happens is we start to get more, we get into what we call fight flee mode, which is a very primitive way of being. And, And we start to worry about ourselves and our own more than that larger societal kind of impact. So, so part of that has been going on and we saw that maybe with the vaccine mandate most strongly where people were just like I I want what's right for me and I don't care about anybody else Mm. Um, but we are also seeing it in the sense that with this chronic stress comes um, burnout Uh, and with burnout sometimes if somebody already has a predisposition towards some mental illness it's often stress that triggers the symptomology and so I think that's what we're seeing in a lot of these cases is, is people who are being triggered and then acting in these sort of random ways that scare the heck out of all of us. And, and unfortunately, it just makes us regress even more in some ways. How yeah. will we get over this? Will we, how do we, how does society move on? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I really think we need to get to a place where we feel a little safer, but but it doesn't. The world doesn't seem to be cooperating, right? You have like Putin shifting nuclear weapons around, and mm. you have uh, the environmental crisis going on, and weather events all the time. It really feels like it's so hard for us to get that break we needed after the pandemic. Um, and you know, I feel in the education sphere, I feel this is very significant, where people are really trying to get their feet back out, uh, feet back under them. But it is hard. Uh, these things constantly challenge us and just, as you said, kind of push us a step backwards as we're trying to take two steps forward. And we talked about this prior to the pandemic about um, people forgetting how to agree to a disagree. It's my way or the highway. I, I don't care if your point's better than mine. Mine's this, and I've got proof to back that up. Um, it seemed during, just like you were saying, if there's sensitivities towards mental illness, those, is, those are heightened during a pandemic. It seems this is just kind of heightened as well, that we, we, we've lost that team effort. Yeah, and it's partly because, I mean, we've always had disagreements with other people. We've already always known that there are certain things we agree with and other things we don't. Um, but those disagreements, not only have they become strong in, in certain people, but they've become so important to their life. It's like suddenly this issue, yeah. whatever it is, that was not important to me at all before the pandemic is is my defining feature. And, you know, I've, I've said many times that that's my hope for all of this is that if we can kind of wander forward and not pick at the scabs, you know, not revisit the, those issues that caused us to be so divided in the first place and look for that common ground. Um, and, and especially if you have people in your family uh, or in your life more general that you value, but you, that you've become, you know, separated from, search for that common ground and maybe even do it explicitly. Maybe just tell that person, listen, if we talk about this, it's not going to go well. We both know that. But we all care about this thing <laughs> over here too. How about we try to talk just about that and stay on common ground? And I think if we can find that common ground and we can start to you know, walk together on that common ground, those other divisive issues, I hope, will fade away and fade into the background. And, and you know, that's, that's my, when I look forward, that's, that's my hopeful future. It seems that we're being taught or encouraged to pick a side, pick a team. You're this way or yeah. you're that way. Why? How does that happen? I mean, we, we have all the usual suspects we can point to now, the echo chambers online and things like that. Everybody wants to be right. So we, we've always had this thing we call confirmation bias, that once we believe something to be true, we look for more evidence to support what we believe, and we just ignore or reject any evidence that goes against it. Um, but this has really become heightened now with social media. We can find people who just agree with us, and so we can become now really hyper-strengthened, whereas we used to you know, continually run into people with different views. Uh, and so now it seems like there's this hyper-polarization, and nobody's happy. Happy. You know, they create these issues where there's, like you say, a black and a white, and never is there any gray in between that's considered safe ground. You're you're either on my team or you're not. And that's just, first of all, it's almost always wrong. The truth is always almost somewhere in the middle. Um, yeah. And it's just not a great way for us to be if we want to actually work together, which is humans at their best when we're working together. And if it doesn't go in our direction, then we start questioning institutions. Like there's, you know, a more right than a wrong, you know, it, it, it's bizarre. 
Yeah, I mean, that's the real scary part for me is is the paranoia and the willingness to, you know, just like, for example, I mean, maybe this this is my perspective as well, but the, I think of Canada in, in terms of a government as us having perhaps one of the least obnoxious and forceful governments of any country. And yet even here, you know, you we know people at the provincial levels and at the national levels who are taking out so much anger and, and hatred and just, you know, you can feel the, the vitriol in their speech as, as they look to the leaders, as, as though our leaders are, you know, somehow trying to cause trouble when, you know, for most people who watch them, they're just trying to weather the storm like the rest of us are. Um, but yeah, it seems like an easy target these days. And, and it's a scary target because sometimes it starts to feel like people are against democracy. And, and that's when I think for, for many of us who, you know, grow up, grew up with the World War II stories and Hogan's Heroes and all this stuff in our minds, mm. This idea of people who seem to be going after the democracy and the Canadian democracy is is very scary and and something I think we need to get past and we need to find ways of talking more respectfully around these issues. I only got a few seconds left. Will polarization go out of style? It's 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 now it's hip to be on a team. Is it going out? Will it go to style? Oh my goodness. I sure hope so. I, I really sure do because this is such a hard way to live. And, and I, I think it will mm. go out of style because I think those things that polarize us will become less important. And, and the classic one would be like the vaccine mandate. You know, at some point it's just irrelevant now. Uh, and so while it's irrelevant, hopefully, even if we're on one side or the other, it won't matter because there's yeah. so many other things we're on the same side with. Uh, and so that's again, my rallying cry, find that common ground, live on that common ground. That's our path to walking together. There's your words of wisdom. Steve Jordan's with us, professor of psychology, University of Toronto, and the anger we feel in society today and the divisiveness. Steve, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Thank you very much, man. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, uh, big announcement. Uh, obviously, the budget was announced today. We'll talk about that throughout the course of the afternoon. Uh, the other big story, another tragedy, this time in Quebec. A Quebec provincial police officer has been killed while trying to arrest a man on Monday night, about 100K northeast of Montreal. Uh, the provincial police were called around 8.30 p.m. to intervene in a dispute at an apartment building. The suspect, the 35-year-old man, uh, uttering threats to tell us what happened and where we are now, Phil Carpenter with us, photojournalist with Global News, and is here now. Phil, thanks for the time. What can you tell us uh, uh, about, give us a bit of an update on where we are. How did this happen? Well, uh, according to police, uh, these uh, two police officers were called to an apartment uh, in the middle of the town uh, because of uh, some kind of a disturbance. And when they showed up, they tried to, according to the uh, the uh, provincial body that uh, is handling the investigation, they take over whenever there's a, a, a police intervention that um, that uh, leads to fatality. They're telling us that uh, these two police officers showed up and uh, this person issued uh, threats. And when they tried to arrest them, uh, he allegedly stabbed uh, the female uh, sergeant, and then she fell off the balcony uh, onto the sidewalk uh, several floors um, below, and she was taken to hospital and then uh, declared dead. Now, beyond that, uh, police officers' investigations are, investigators aren't saying anything uh, much. Um, they've handed everything over to the uh, to the DEA. Uh, this is the investigative uh, body, and uh, they aren't telling us much either. So for now, 
um, investigators are still on site, and uh, we're just hoping for more updates uh, later on this afternoon. So, uh, obviously, an altercation on a balcony, and the officer at that point stabbed trying to arrest this person and then went over a balcony and fell. That's accurate? That's what we're hearing. Uh, they're not giving us, or they haven't given us any details as to the right. details of the, uh, the, the altercation, but they basically said that they showed up, tried to arrest this person, and uh, then the, and, uh, she was stabbed. Now, they called for backup, and uh, the peer officers who showed up afterwards, they shot and, uh, and, 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 uh, and killed the suspect. Do we know at this point how far that poor officer fell? Uh, it seems like two or three floors. We're not sure at this point. Some people are saying two, two, two stories. Some people are saying three. But it is a three-story a, a three apartment uh, building. Hmm. And we understand that this was happening while they were trying to um, uh, uh, arrest the the suspect. Uh, any idea how a knife came to play in all of this? Because you would assume when they're doing that, they've you know probably secured the situation and taken any weapons away. Uh, any any sort of uh, storyline there uh, as to how this person ended up with a knife? Again, no details. I mean, the BEI, that's the investigative body, they're telling us that mm. a knife was close by. That's all they've said to us, but no other details at all. So we're all here left wondering exactly what happened. Oh, my. And tell us about the veteran officer. I understand she was, uh, she'd was she been on the service for a while. Yeah, that's right. She's been on the service for 20-plus years. She's a sergeant. Uh, her husband as well, we were told, well, is, always, is also a provincial uh, a police officer. Oh, um, both have, you know, Lots of experience in, in, in situations like this, so it's still a puzzle as to how, you know, why and how this thing, uh, this thing came about. And obviously, uh, the person who, who stabbed has been shot, correct? Correct. Uh, he's been, he was fatally shot by uh, officers who were called as backup. Now, one thing we were being told by the mayor is that it seems like he had a history of mental illness, and so this was mm. a mental health crisis situation. And so he's saying that, you know, Communities need more resources, more psychosocial services to help avoid things like this from happening in future. So he's calling for more, more resources, as is the union that represents the, uh, the provincial police. Have we heard anything more regarding uh, the suspect and their and their family? Obviously, you're, you're saying that there was uh, mental illness issues there. Any word from the family at all? Nothing yet. Uh, we don't even have his name yet. We, if, though, uh, at least one media outlet was reporting his name, but we haven't been able to confirm that yet. Um, but, you know, like I said, it is, it's the mayor who was telling us that it seems like this was a mental health crisis. But again, we, we haven't hmm. been able to confirm any of that. All right. Phil Carpenter with us, photojournalist with Global News. The latest on what is coming out of Quebec, any provincial police officer uh, dying in the line of duty as a result of a stabbing there. Phil, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck. Be well. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Federal Budget Day. Oh, it's exciting. Um, I wonder how Eric Cam loves these days. Professor of Economics, uh, Toronto Metropolitan University, and with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. I hope you are as well. So far, so good. Is this an exciting day for you, Eric? Do you look forward to these sorts of things? Well, it's my anniversary, so, you know, it started off on a damper, but in general, yeah, I mean, having the budget is always going to be kind of an exciting day for economists, no matter what, you know, ilk you study, but um, this one kind of leaves me a little bit lacking, which is why I'm sure that you called. I mean, I guess, I guess it could have been much worse, but what I, you know, I've had about an hour to digest it, and here's my problem with it, and you know that I'm not a big fan of this government, and this is kind of why. 
I look at the 43 billion in new spending and and you say, well, that could have been worse and healthcare and dental affordability and clean economy. I mean, I'm not all for this whole clean economy mission right now. Not that I'm not for a clean economy, but I've said before that the carbon tax should be the first thing that they scrap. So my problem with this is when you actually dig into the weeds of it, you start to look at exactly what's going on. And they say, well, we're going to collect 5.7 billion less in revenue, right? And then they Friedland says, well, we're going to slash 15.4 billion in spending. And people clap and they say, okay, they're going to bring spending down. So we must be doing better. But then out of the next side of her mouth, she says, but the uh, debt is going up and the debt to GDP ratio is going up. And so that's like me showing you a fraction and saying, listen, usually we lower the numerator. We're not going to do that this time. We're going to raise the denominator and hope you don't see the difference. But Canadians are smart. And so when they look at this budget, you can run through it point by point. And as I say, it could have been worse. I was kind of cringing at what it could have happened. But the bottom line is this is a liberal government. They are going to tax and they are going to spend, Scott. And that's never going to change. Uh, one time tax there, the, the, you, the, really the NDP leader was calling this the GT or, or uh, GST credit or rebate. And now they're calling it a grocery rebate. It could be gasoline rebate. It depends what you want to spend the money on or a kid's clothes rebate or what have you. This is one time going to go out, hit 11 million Canadians. Uh, they say we want to help those in need, which basically means not the middle class, not the majority of Canadians, but those that are really, really, really struggling at the lower end of the spectrum. Is that a good way to help provide some sort of relief, but also not put us into an economic tailspin? It's both of those things. The problem is, is that it's not sustaining. It's not long term. There's a really big difference between giving somebody a handout, what we call a once for all handout. And those are the things that you do to win elections and try to get the public to pat you on the back. But that's not the same as raising the disposable income of people that are hardworking. Giving out money is not raising income. In fact, there's nothing of the sort. If you want to raise income, it has to be something that's permanent and distinct, like, say, cutting a carbon tax or cutting the GST for a period of time. Handing out money is wonderful, and it will provide some relief to the very few people who are going to get it. The problem is, is that this is overwhelmed by the new by the spending that is there and she says well it's less spending than usual and that's just a numbers game i've talked to two or three dentists honestly and said what do you think about what's going on with with this denticare idea and they said to me eric it's going to break the system if you think that health care or what we call healthy care is mm. expensive that's just you going to the doctor they said you cannot imagine how expensive just going to the dentist is going to be. And this is talking about 9 million people going to the dentist. So really, it's another case of a liberal government saying, don't look over here, look over here. And frankly, Scott, I'm just getting tired of it. Well, wait a sec here. I'll play devil's advocate, Eric. Don't everybody, doesn't everybody deserve some sort of dental care? Come on. Um, The truth? No, I don't think everybody deserves some sort of dental care. I think some people who are the lowest marginalized people of society may need some help in dental care. But we both know how this is going to go. We both know that many, many people who don't need the government assistance are going to get it like everything else. And if they talked about different systems or alternative systems or tiering the system, not really. They're just saying that we're going to have an arbitrary number of approximately 9 million people and we're going to help them get 
dental care. The problem is, is that it's going to turn out to be fraudulent, not to be too negative, but some people who don't need the help, the same as with things like old age pension and other seniors benefits that don't need the help are going to get it. If you could promise me that people on the lowest end of the socioeconomic spectrum are going to get their dental care looked after, then I'd be all for this. But that is a lot less than 9 million people. Um, NDP supporting this. They've said they're going to. Conservatives, of course, not. So this will go through. Uh, is this over? Is this done? What next? Do uh, we just pack it up till next time? I don't know. I don't really know what's going to go on. I mean, in theory, as long as the NDP prop up the government, then yes, then it is going to go on until next time. And I guess that in Jagmeet Singh's list of things that he had to see happen, um, he got enough of them that he said, we're going to vote for this. But just again, you know, I, I don't want to be too repetitious, but nothing about disposable income, nothing about raising income for homeowners. You notice they didn't talk about any inflation relief, don't you? They didn't bring that up at all because they don't want you to talk about inflation. So what they do is they say, look over here, suicide prevention. Look over here, the opioid crisis. Look over here, new green initiatives. All wonderful and all have their time. But that time isn't when a majority of Canadians are struggling and a larger amount of people that we want to know are about $200 away from insolvency. Wrong taxes, wrong principles, wrong time. Uh, we had someone on from Ipsos earlier on in all five top five issues uh, concerning Canadians in regard around the budget were all affordability issues. They were all uh, cost of living, whether it's groceries, whether it's housing, whatever. Uh, do you think uh, the majority of Canadians are going to look at this and go, oh, this is a relief? No, I don't, because I have faith in Canadians. Canadians are smart. They're going to look at the fact that the debt to GDP ratio rose, the federal debt rose, and not one item in this in this budget that is meant for relief is permanent. It's transient. It's once for all. It's enjoy this now because you may never see it again. And that's the MO of a liberal government. Eric Camp, Professor Economics, Toronto Metropolitan University, breaking down the budget. Eric, as always, thanks for the time and have a great anniversary. Thank you very much. Stay healthy, Scott. We all remember that um, uh, President Joe Biden came to Ottawa for a sleepover, and then it was announced that uh, the border at Roxham Road, the hole in the fence, as they say, which basically was open when the prime minister said Canada was open for business, a reaction to what Donald Trump was saying in the United States. That went viral. Next thing you know, um, what was was a hole in the fence now becomes a, a major highway for uh, illegal immigration and those making money from it. Then the president arrived. And all of a sudden, everything is closed at that border. But what has changed? What is different today than from a couple of weeks ago? Let's bring in Laurel Matacoro, historian, associate professor, Department of History at Carleton University and with us now. Laura, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Help us understand here. Uh, so, uh, you know, we've had this this hole for a while. People have been talking about it. And then we get up to like, what, something close to 40,000 people going back and forth uh, every so every year or so. And and now the president shows up and all of a sudden it's closed. We understand there was some preliminary talks that needed to be said before all of this could be done. But what is different today than was a week or two weeks ago? What's different in in, in this whole situation? Well, the big difference for migrants is that they have very different opportunities to make their their refugee claims if that's what they want to do. Essentially, what happened was about a year ago, 
the Canadian government did come up with a plan to um, to make the safe third country agreement apply to the entire border up until uh, basically Friday at midnight. The safe third country agreement, which says that refugees who are making claims for refuge have to do so in their first country of asylum. So if they make a claim in the United States, they can't come to Canada and then make a claim. Essentially, that agreement covered all the official border crossings. But we know that people um, were using different crossings. So some people were coming through in Ma and Manitoba. Roxham Road in Quebec has gotten the most media attention. But as we all know, the border between Canada and the United States is really quite vast. And so what the additional protocol did on Friday was say the same rules are going to apply regardless of where um, you come through the border. Which is what it was before this all started happening. So how is this any different than just following the rules that they normally followed? And why would the U.S. president be needed to aid in this? Yeah, there's a re it's a great question because there is a discussion about whether or not Canada needed to wait for President Biden to come to Ottawa to to announce these changes. As I as I mentioned, they had actually put these modifications into place last year. They just hadn't implemented them. My sense is they were waiting to see what was happening exactly. The numbers, you know, we talk a lot about the the thirty nine thousand uh, from last year, but that's a significant increase, and it doesn't account for the number of people who've also crossed into the United States. We're living in a moment where there's just a lot of migration globally, both uh, here in North America, but really when you look around the world, the numbers are up. A lot of those numbers are, are people who are displaced. You know, if we think about Ukrainian refugees fleeing the conflict uh, in the Ukraine, there's just, there's, there's just a lot of movement. Um, and so my sense was the government was maybe waiting to see whether it was necessary to implement uh, these changes. There, one of the things that we haven't been talking a lot about is how expensive it is to manage the border. Uh, and so there are a number of exceptions to the safe third country agreement. Many people can still make uh, claims. Uh, they can still follow the process and, and submit their claims to the Immigration and Refugee Board. So it's a, it's a very complex process. And I think there probably were a lot of conversations happening in Ottawa, in Washington. Uh, we know that uh, the United States as well has been thinking about how they want to try and manage migration. And really what's, what's sort of striking if we think about the amount of energy that we're spending talking about the border is how little energy is being spent talking about many of the root causes, right? Right? the political and economic turmoil around the world that's causing people to, to think hard about whether or not they have to leave their homes. Many times the, the, the Prime Minister was talking about how rather than fix the whole, we have to change the uh, safe third country agreement uh, or it has to be scrapped or whatever. And, and really, it sounds like, if anything, it's been strengthened not uh, scrapped or renegotiated. The only thing that's different is now when you, you know, you, you have to go to an actual legal border crossing in order to make these claims as opposed, as opposed to an unofficial or open uh, border. So uh, it, again, it, it, has this been really altered or scrapped? Is it easier? If anything, it's made it more difficult. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the things we need to keep in mind is that the safe third country agreement was um, is being challenged. It's the case was heard by the Supreme Court of Canada uh, last year. And so we're waiting on a decision to see whether or not the constitutionality of the agreement will be upheld. I think the prime minister really uh, and his and his team really sort of 
struggled with how to proceed. It's interesting with the way that the changes have been made. Um, people have basically what the rules say now is that if you cross into Canada and you are not detected in the first two weeks, then you can still make a claim. There's still there's still opportunities mm. to as because people have the right to make a refugee claim. This is a fundamental yeah. fact that we can't lose sight of, that under the 1951 Convention relating to the status of refugees, which is international law, it's been incorporated into Canadian law, people do have the right to seek asylum. And so the big question on all sides is how do, how do you protect that right while making sure that people are safe as they as they try and make those, those claims for refuge? And so the whole question of managing the border becomes very complicated as a result. So, uh, and we all certainly know we're, we're a country of immigrants. Uh, I'm first generation Canadian. My mother came here with the suitcase and the clothes on her back and such, uh, and, and made claims th- through the, you know, proper, uh, channels and what have you. So what would you like to see? Uh, how would you like to see this situation improve? So, uh, immigration and the people who need to make the claims can do that, but we also do it through legal measures and those that are trying to get in don't how do we we've seen what biden and trudeau has come up have come up with here what is missing what do we need to do moving forward for this discussion well i think one of the big concerns has been just the pressure that the number of claims have put on the system and it's interesting when you look at the statistics from the immigration and refugee board basically from 2017 to 2022 30,000 people were found to be refugees. So we make a lot of judgments about the way people cross the border as though that helps us understand what their conditions are, what their situations are. But the reality is we don't know until people make their claims and they're heard by a professional tribunal. And that's really important because I think it points to maybe one of the solutions, which is to make sure that our systems are just our, our legal processes are well supported, that they're funded, that the um, that people receive proper and correct information about how to proceed. Um, so these are all things that are not about the border itself. They're about the kinds of structures that we put in place internally. And then I think the other thing we need to do is really pay attention to what's going on globally and think about how as a country we might be able to provide humanitarian assistance abroad, think about economic development. There are all kinds of ways that migration is interconnected with politics and economics. And so really focusing on the border uh, in some ways, we miss uh, a lot of other issues that we might also want to think about in order to, to make sure that people are making you know, the best choices for themselves and doing so in a way that is safe uh, and doesn't necessarily require that they leave their homes, right? If nobody, nobody yeah. wants to leave a home that mm. they love. Mm. So, uh, Laura, your thoughts on where we are today? Is this an improvement? No, <laughs> no, I don't think it's an improvement. I I understand how complex uh, a situation this is, and I don't envy yeah. uh, you know governments who are, who are trying to answer to a number of different um, communities. I really think that this uh, change makes it much more precarious for migrants uh, who um, have very legitimate reasons in some cases for for trying to 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 seek refuge. And we need to make sure that their claims are heard. Uh, so we do have a responsibility in that regard. I do worry as well, you know, I'm sure you've picked up on this as have your listeners, the conversations become really, really politicized. And yeah. so it's unfortunate and quite damaging that migrants who, you know, ha- are not responsible for the border uh, have become subject to, to really some very polarizing conversations 
transition. So I worry about what this change has done to our political discourse as well and what, what impact that has on um, migrants and refugees generally. But I do think, you know, Canadian history is so fascinating for the number of times that civil servants have come up with really innovative solutions that um, speak to a, a, a belief in humanitarianism, a belief in managing migration. Uh, and I hope that we can see more of that moving forward. In a lot of different areas, uh, Laura Matacoro with us, historian, associate professor, Department of History, Carleton University, talking about the Roxham Road issue and changes or alters uh, to the uh, safe third country agreement. Laura, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, Scott Radley show. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. How are you? I'm doing very well. Let me run this by you. Show us your Regina, the city that rhymes with fun. <laughs> we have talked about this on my show a few times. This is, uh, so have you explained on the show? I've not been listening today, unfortunately. I apologize, but have That's you okay. explained what this is to your audience? Yeah, uh, Tourism Regina came up with this great idea and uh, they put it out there and then unfortunately people got upset <laughs> uh, and they thought show us your Regina, the city that rhymes with fun was, was put it this way, we're in the hammer and we're talking about it. So I'd say home run, no? Well, okay, so here's a couple things that we've talked about, as I say, on the show. The first one is, if, if this is a really bad idea, and a lot of people think it is, think of how many steps this had to get through before it got yeah. public. Yeah. And nobody along the way said, well, well, hold on just a second, maybe we shouldn't go down this route. But the other, as you say, uh, do you remember the CFL probably about 12 or 14 years ago, maybe a little more than that, had a went with the catchphrase, our balls are bigger. Do you remember that one? I don't actually, oh, no. Okay, and that was seen as really edgy and people, you know, there were t-shirts and everything made. Like, if you're going to commit to this, commit to it and just live with the, the fallout and live with the fact that peep, some people are going to be upset. And if you're not going to commit to it, then don't even start moving it down the line because then you end up in a situation like this where you look bad on every side because some will say you've got no sense of humor and some will say, well, whoever thought this was a good idea in the first place? Uh, unlike Ottawa's, the city that fun forgot. The city, not, but not funds forgot. This is the <laughs> after today. No, but yes, it's a, I mean, look, we could, if we could sit here, if we had the time and we don't, uh, I'd love to come up with one for every single city across. Canada. I said that to Alyssa Freeman. I had Alyssa Freeman, PR oh, and really? pop culture expert on. And I, and I said, like, think of it, you know, why is this bad? And she goes, you know, it's sophomoric, it's grade three. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, I came up with a brilliant idea. What city or town rhymes with penis? And uh, the only thing she could come up with was the planet Venus. So mm -hmm. I don't know. The planet Venus, the or sorry, uh, show us your Venus, the planet that uh, rhymes with fun. <laughs> well, you know, the, like there could have been worse things for Regina. You uh, know, if I, I mean, delivered, like, if I had delivered that right, it would have been hilarious. You know, there could have been worse things for Regina. I mean, you know, uh, the, the, you could have had a logo of if Canada was going to have an enema, this is where you'd put the hose. You know, <laughs> <laughs> 
That would have been way worse. That was well delivered. I might add. Huh? I'm <laughs> sure that you? would. I'm sure that would have got did even more have, people did, upset. Did you save that from the show the other day? You did on this. Was no, that but, like, no, but was it, that a uh, memorable moment? No, that that one actually came up. Um, my daughter and I were driving through a, a an area of unfortunately of town the other day, and that line came up. If Hamilton was going to get an enema, here's where the hose nice, would go. So we just nice. expanded it. Um, Look, it, as I say, wh- whether you think that it's totally outrageously offensive or you think it's hysterical, the fact that it got public and that it went this far is the mistake to me because now nobody ends up winning in this. The city is either without fun and without a sense of humor or it's totally <laughs> offensive and whoever thought this was a good idea. you This needed to either be, as I say, you've got to sell out on this one and have the t-shirts and caps and mugs made or you never, you, you, as soon as someone says it, you go, okay, thanks, Bob. Uh, now, what's your real one? But that didn't happen, clearly. You have to wonder if somewhere there's an underground business somewhere in in uh, Saskatchewan that's going to come up with these T-shirts oh, and sell think? them anyway. You think? I mean, look, yeah. we, we have um, uh, Hamilton is home here with Max Francis. Brilliant, yeah, brilliant yeah. They're T-shirts. Very cool. And, yeah. Very cool and everything else. Guaranteed there is a Max Francis in Saskatchewan who is yeah. pumping these babies out in his basement right now. Uh, whether or not there's a, somebody had better have put a, a, a trademark on this. Otherwise, they are going to be everywhere in someone's making a lot of dough. All right, there you have it. Uh, well, I don't know if there you have it, but <laughs> <laughs> there you have something. You know, that's, and that's the difficulty that uh, Alyssa and I had, was once you finished uh, talking about the issue, everything you said kind of resonated around it, whether, you know. That we, it it, we it can just turned do, into a bad choice of words, if yeah. you know what I mean. And you know what? If we talk for five more minutes, guaranteed there would be nine Freudian slips or yes. Freudian well, thoughts going through your head. Absolutely. We're, we're going to say something that will generate another lawsuit. All right. Enough of that. Uh, thank you, Scott. Have yourself a great show tonight. See you. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Mr. Lowe has the last word today on the budget. First, sure, the NDP will support the budget. Can that party afford another election? Not. Second, did the MPs cancel their upcoming pay raises as a way to find cost-saving measures? The money saved here could go back to many of our Canadian Armed Forces personnel who will soon lose their cost of living allowance. 